Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the CBS News Roundup ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, dozens of deaths amid dangerous wintry weather in the nation. It's been slippery, um, icy. Terrible. I slept like seven times. A scathing report on the response to the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Do right by the victims and survivors of Robb Elementary. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, a look at the career of a trailblazing Latina journalist. The industry is more open today than it was 20 or 30 years ago, but we also can do better. I'm Allison Keys in Washington. It's a little bit dangerous. You know, you take a fall here, you could break a hip, you could break an arm, you know, it's very dangerous. The weather in the nation this week, from Tennessee to Wisconsin to Oregon and Illinois, has been a freezing, deadly mess. Dozens have died, some from hypothermia, some from falling trees, and others in car crashes. Slow down and stop switching lanes. Drive slow, <laughs> like definitely drive slow and watch out. We asked CBS News meteorologist David Parkinson for an update. Yeah, I mean, we've had now uh, at least four cross-country storms since the beginning of the year. And so uh, it's both coasts that have been seeing the most uh, precipitation. Uh, But we had impacts as far south this week as Memphis, Tennessee, where they got several inches of snow. Same thing for Nashville. It looked like something out of the Northeast, but nope, that was Nashville. And now uh, we're seeing the Mid-Atlantic getting in on the snowfall action. What's it looking like for the weekend? Is it going to switch now from precipitation to just more horrifically deadly freezing temperatures, which has been killing people all over the nation? Yeah, the key thing here is is that if you have snow on the ground, it's not really going anywhere anytime soon. Your high temperature on Saturday in a place like Philadelphia is only going to be 24 degrees. So that's not the overnight low. That is the daytime high temperature. Uh, Then we add in the wind chills, and it's even more dangerous. As you said, we've got those wind chill advisories that stretch from uh, the central portion of the country right up to the east coast and all the way down into the south. In fact, we may not get above freezing in Atlanta. We're looking for a high there around 30. Uh, We may, in fact, have a high in the 20s in portions of Alabama and Mississippi. So that cold is in there, but it's not stuck for too long. That really is the good news. We are going to be warming up as we head into next week. It's a total pattern reversal. So the interesting thing is we've got about 277 million Americans with below average temperatures. Uh, That is... uh, basically more than 80 percent of the country. So clearly a lot of people facing that. But then by the time we get into the midweek, so uh, by Wednesday, 250 million Americans are above average. So a real quick turnaround from absolutely freezing cold that has been dangerous and deadly 
uh, to temperatures that are are feeling a little bit better, uh, certainly warmer than we would normally be this time of year. So, David, basically, this is just winter, although I think the nation has kind of forgotten what winter is really like over the last few years, right? Yeah, we haven't had particularly cold winters thus far the last couple of years. Um, and in an El Nino year, you don't necessarily get a lot of cold shots, but when, when you do, they are very cold, and that's what we're seeing. And then as we turn our attention to next week, uh, it's an interesting problem on the West Coast. We're going to be seeing another storm come through for California, but it's so warm that instead of getting snow up in the Sierra, which we like to see, it's going to be a lot of rain below 7,000 feet. Uh, so we've got a flood threat both coastally and in some of the, uh, let's call it the foothills. Now to Uvalde, Texas, where a newly released report from the Justice Department finds that the emergency response to the 2022 school shooting at Robb Elementary was an epic failure. 19 children and two teachers died. CBS's Lilia Luciano has covered this from the beginning. Nearly 400 law enforcement officials swarmed Robb Elementary that tragic day, but a new Justice Department report found critical failures in leadership, communication and training in the response to the mass shooting that killed 19 children and two teachers. Had the law enforcement agencies followed generally accepted practices, lives would have been saved and people would have survived. After the first responding officers were grazed by bullets and retreated, tactics shifted under the command of former school district police chief Pete Arredondo, from those used to deal with an active shooter situation to a barricaded subject, a critical misstep according to the report. The DOJ found 10 events within the span of one hour that should have driven police to immediately stop the killing. And a total of 45 rounds while the officers took cover in the hallway. At one point, Arredondo says, time is on our side right now. I know we got kids in there, but we got to save the lives of the other ones. Time is not on the side of law enforcement. Every second counts. That failure meant that law enforcement officials prioritized the protracted evacuation of students and teachers in other classrooms instead of immediately rescuing the victims trapped with the active shooter. Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta led the review. What would you say is most uh, damning and unique of what went wrong? The kind of abject lack of leadership during those 77 minutes didn't end at 77 minutes. You had families who were told by officials that there was going to be another bus of survivors coming and gave them such false hope that maybe this bus would come and they would see their child walk out of it alive. I was actually in lockdown at my school. Jasmine Gassett's sister, Jackie, was killed in the massacre. So you were in your school thinking that mm-hmm. it was fine, that your yeah. sister was safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is it like to be in this community and see those faces? I mean, it's tough. These are faces I've known growing up and then to know that they failed my sister. The goal of the report from the DOJ is to learn lessons for the future and, of course, to honor the victims. But the hope among the families is that it'll also pressure the local DA to prosecute crimes and finally release her criminal investigation. We're learning more about Alzheimer's disease. CBS's Michael George. Doctors are one step closer to understanding how Alzheimer's affects the brain. A new study from Northwestern University identified strands of RNA, or ribonucleic acid, that 
could contribute to brain cell death in Alzheimer's patients. They also found older individuals with strong memories have higher amounts of protective RNA strands in their brain cells. More than 20 years after the deadly September 11th terror attacks, around 40% of the nearly 3,000 people who died are still unidentified. But now a measure of closure for one family who lost a man that day. Using advanced DNA analysis, the remains of a Long Island man killed at the World Trade Center on 9-11 have been identified. John Ballantyne Niven is the 1,650th victim whose remains have been ID'd. More than 2,700 died. Niven was 44 years old. He was an executive at Aon Risk Services, an insurance firm on the 105th floor of Tower 2. He left a wife and son who was 18 months old at the time. Steve Kathan, CBS News. Coming up, the heat on the presidential campaign trail. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Big news for former President Trump Friday ahead of the primary in South Carolina where President Biden picked up a boatload of black voters in 2020. The highest ranking black Republican in the nation, South Carolina Senator and former presidential candidate Tim Scott, is endorsing Trump. This as a flurry of activity is happening in New Hampshire ahead of Tuesday's primary. It's crunch time for candidates in the Granite State. I hear you're running again. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley got an early start Friday, mingling with voters at a coffee shop, hoping that New Hampshire solidifies her place as the alternative to former President Trump. DeSantis and Trump are way out for me. They were never in. They were actually never in. Mary Ellen Molyneux showed up to hear from Haley. New Hampshire allows independents to vote in the primary, and she's considering changing her registration to be able to participate. I'm close to feeling confident about her in terms of my vote. I'm a registered Democrat, but I feel like I will change my party to independent. Trump railed against New Hampshire's rules on Fox News's Hannity show, saying it artificially props up Haley. They're going to vote for her because they don't want to run against me. They want to run against her. George Washington University professor Todd Belt says allowing independents to vote in the primary better reflects who's more electable in November. It's not a perfect picture of America, but it's a closer picture than Iowa. What's at stake in New Hampshire? Whether or not Nikki Haley can really pull away. I think that if we see Donald Trump come in below 50 percent, then that's going to indicate that there's a lot of Republicans who are looking for someone else. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is in New Hampshire. Hello, South Carolina. But he shifted resources to South Carolina, where he'll campaign this weekend. Natalie Brandt, CBS News, Washington. 
There were a record high number of anti-Semitic incidents in the nation last year. CBS's Stacey Lynn. Michael Masters runs the Secure Community Network. So we logged a record 5,404 incident reports in 2023. That's 112% higher than 2022's total. And just since the terror attacks by Hamas on October 7th, we've logged a staggering 2,600 plus incident reports. That's more incidents in those three months than in the entirety of 2022. We are seeing a threat environment that is complex, it is dynamic, and it is being fed by hate, vitriol, and anti-Semitism. What types of incidents are we talking about the most, Michael? So it runs the gamut from uh, graffiti and vandalism to assaults and attacks on members of the Jewish community, swatting incidents, and false bomb threats. And of course, we're seeing global calls, both overseas and domestically, for the destruction and genocide of Jews, which we haven't seen at this level in over 78 years. Tell us a little bit about how law enforcement is trying to tackle this. Law enforcement is doing phenomenal work to identify and apprehend these offenders, but that is not the sole solution. Law enforcement is never going to be able to arrest the hate and anti-Semitism that exists within people's hearts. And that requires a whole community response. We can't tolerate members of the American public, members of the broader public calling for genocide, calling for death, supporting the rape and murder of a faith-based group in the United States or overseas, it's simply unacceptable. And that requires a larger outcry than simply what law enforcement can do. And they are doing uh, phenomenal work on our behalf. It's so startling because this is happening and it's 2024. Is there something that you tell the Jewish community to make them feel safer during these really unsettling times? I would tell them that we need to be vigilant, that we need to be empowered. The Jewish community has faced threats for 4,000 years. We cannot be terrorized or subdued uh, through fear, and we shouldn't be. So I would say we shouldn't accept it. We should stand strong. We should be proud. Uh, we should hope that and work that other faith-based communities, other minority groups, other religious groups will stand with us against the hate and terror that we see impacting our community because it may be us today, but it's going to be somebody else tomorrow. CBS's Stacey Lynn. The FBI is sounding an alarm about a rise in sexual extortion schemes targeting children. It's happening on social media as well as on gaming and video streaming platforms. CBS's Nicole Skanga with important information for parents. A college-bound track star, 17-year-old James Woods, had just gotten his driver's license and posed for his senior yearbook photo. They always said he had a beautiful smile, which he did. When his mother, Tamia Woods, says an online predator targeted James on Instagram. James received 200 messages in less than 20 hours. It ranged anywhere from, I own you to, you, you need to take your own life. The FBI calls it financial sextortion. That any child can be a victim of this crime. Minors coerced by criminals, often working together overseas, into sharing compromised images of themselves. This is a predator that is solely interested in financial gain. Children as young as nine years old told to send money or the photos will be posted online. 
From October 2021 through March 2023, the FBI has tracked roughly 12,600 extortion victims, all of them minors. Since 2021, at least 20 kids have died by suicide, including Woods' son, James. The most horrible phone call I've ever received that my only child, my, my blessing, um, is no longer here. Now the FBI is trying to warn parents and encourage victims to break their silence. Why do tips matter so much? That's the intelligence. That's the information that we have that makes law enforcement have the ability to act. The Woods family shattering the stigma. You know, he was my only child. And so I have to live through my memories. And that's all I have now are memories. By sharing their story. Nicole Skanga, CBS News, Washington. Consumers are optimistic about the economy. CBS News business reporter Jason Brooks. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index in January surged nearly 10 points higher to a reading of just under 79, well above market estimates and the highest reading since July 2021. Now for the story of a very good girl in Michigan who proved that dogs really are man's best friend and lifesavers. A Traverse City, Michigan man fell through ice on a lake and a witness called police. Is that him right there? Yeah. Michigan State Police Officer Cameron Bennett's body cam shows him grabbing a rescue disc to throw to the man, but he couldn't get it close enough. Then he noticed a dog. Send your pup here. Will she come to me? Uh, Ruby, come here. She came, took the rescue disc in her mouth, and ran it out to her owner. The 65-year-old man grabbed it, and Officer Bennett pulled the rope attached to it. Keep taking your feet. Pull, pull, pull. Are you out of the water? He was out, examined at a hospital, and lives to tell the tale of Ruby's rescue. Jennifer Kuiper, CBS News. Coming up, the escalating situation in the Middle East. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. President Biden says U.S. military strikes against Iran-backed Houthis will continue in Yemen, even though he admits that's not deterring the militants from attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. All this amid the Israel-Hamas war. CBS's Charlie Daggett is tracking all of this from a warship. We join Marines from the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. They're home for more than six months and counting the USS Bataan, the amphibious warship and Navy workhorse that's been center stage for U.S. military action here. The USS Bataan had been in the Red Sea. It was then shifted to the Mediterranean because of the circumstances in this region. And now it's been deployed indefinitely. Four, five, three. Equipped with Harrier fighter jets and spearheading a quick reaction force that includes a full contingent of more than 2,000 U.S. Marines. The Marines should have sailed home by now, too, but the war in Gaza and the regional repercussions it triggered changed all that. In complete darkness, Harriers soar into the night sky, running drills and making their presence known along this stretch of the Mediterranean. What's happening here on deck now after dark is all about readiness. This ship and the aircraft on it have been specifically deployed due to growing threats across the region, not only as a deterrent, but ready to respond if necessary. From the Houthis, where the U.S. launched another wave of ship and submarine-launched missiles on suspected Houthi targets in Yemen. 
to Iran, holding air defense exercises in its own show of power. The fights between Israel and Hezbollah worsening by the day. The Marines here remain in reach of both Israel and Lebanon should they be called upon to fight, provide humanitarian assistance, or even evacuate thousands of Americans who live in both countries. The unit's motto, ready, relevant, and capable, seems more apt than ever. A U.S. official tells CBS News that the U.S. military has managed to take out enough of the Houthis' air defense system to enable drones to fly over Yemen, providing the kind of surveillance they didn't have a week ago. Charlie Daggett of CBS News for BBC News aboard the USS Bataan on the Mediterranean. Now to London and a double health scare for the royal family. King Charles is undergoing a procedure next week for an enlarged prostate, and the Princess of Wales is recovering in a hospital after abdominal surgery. CBS's MTS Tyab. The last time both King Charles and Princess Catherine were seen in public, they were the picture of health as they attended the royal family's annual Christmas Day church service. A palace source told CBS News it was the king himself who wanted to make the details of his diagnosis public to encourage other men who may be experiencing symptoms related to an enlarged prostate to see their own doctors. Less than a year after his lavish coronation, the 75-year-old king is doing things decidedly differently than his late mother by being more open about his health. The announcement came shortly after it was revealed his daughter-in-law, the Princess of Wales, was recovering from a successful planned abdominal surgery. In a statement, Kensington Palace announced the princess will spend up to two weeks in a London hospital and several months recuperating, stressing the surgery was not cancer-related. Yeah, really shocked, actually. Didn't, didn't realise that she was being so, being so unwell. Um, yeah, I just hope that she's doing OK. Known as Kate, the 42-year-old mother of three, frequently polls as one of the most popular and photographed members of the royal family, who since the death of Queen Elizabeth and following her brother and sister-in-law Harry and Meghan's sensational departure from senior royal duties, has increasingly been undertaking solo public engagements. And despite the king's openness, we aren't likely to hear much more about the princess's health, with the palace saying it's her wish to keep the information private and that any further update will be made if there's significant new information to share. Impia's Times, CBS News, London. If you're into tiny treasures, you can get a glimpse inside of Queen Mary's dollhouse on its 100th anniversary. It's been billed as the largest and most famous in the world. CBS's Tina Krause reports. Royal fans are getting a glimpse inside a royal residence like never before. Windsor Castle is lifting the lid on the lavish Queen Mary's dollhouse. It's got a grandeur to it, but it's not a full-scale palace. It's very much a house that a miniature family might live in. The royal replica was built in the 1920s. King George V wanted it for his wife. Initially, it was intended to just be a gift to Queen Mary um, because she was very fond of anything that was miniature. But gradually, as the project progressed, it turned into um, a showcase for British craftsmanship. Now, tiny treasures usually kept hidden inside the house are being unveiled, like this concert grand piano, as petite as they come. It's properly strong. You can press down the keys. 
And of course, the crown jewels adorned with real gems. So there are touches like the thrones in the throne room, but also sort of just ordinary domestic life. And the real key thing to it was that it should be as true to life as possible. So we have running water, we have working lifts and electric light. Tina Kraus, CBS News, London. In this week's Eye on America, a look at the devastating bites imports are taking out of the U.S. shrimping industry. Shrimpers here are asking the federal government to level the playing field. Off South Carolina's coast, Rocky Magwood shrimps with a jumbo problem. It's worse right now than we've ever seen. Plummeting prices for his catch. Is this driving people out of business? Very much so. I mean, people are dropping like flies out of this business. The issue, imported cheap shrimp from Asia. Grown in pond farms like these, often subsidized by foreign governments. It's idled many of the state's roughly 300 shrimpers. I would love to be out there at least six days a week. And how many days are you on the water? Two to three now. Because there's no market? No market. In 2022, local shrimpers here got 5.73 per pound. Last year, 3.39 per pound, down more than 40%, which they say barely covers their costs. Patrick Rooney's restaurant serves only locally caught shrimp. He pays more because he says local shrimp tastes better. You could do cheaper. We could, we could, but uh, that's not what people want. What shrimpers here want a U.S. tariff on foreign competition. You're a fourth generation shrimper. Are you afraid that there won't be a fifth? I have a son that's five right now. He won't be able to do this the way it's going right now. There's no way. And you're not being melodramatic? No. It's, this is just the facts. To keep shrimping, first, they have to catch a break. For Eye on America, Mark Strassman, Shem Creek, South Carolina. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, the legacy of a pioneering Latina journalist. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. This time we're talking about an exhibition at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. De Ultima Ora, Latinas report breaking news is a look back at seven trailblazing journalists who have fought through racism, colorism, and sexism to tell important stories to Spanish-language communities globally. They've been to Vietnam, covered the 9-11 terror attacks, and presidential debates with very pointed questions. For both CBS News Radio and Smithsonian Magazine, I asked Univision News anchor Ilya Calderon what it was like to be featured in this exhibition. You know, Alison, more that what it means to me is what it means to people like me. What it means to kids like me that can go and walk through the museum and see a person that looks like them uh, and see a person and know about the story of Ilya Calderon, an immigrant, an Afro-Latina that was denied several opportunities, but was able to make it. So, um, I think it's, you know, it's a great honor for me. I feel um, more than honored, humble to, to be in that privileged place. But I think it means a lot for, for other kids, Hispanics and Blacks, to see someone like them in, in a museum. And you are anchor of two major evening news programs for Univision. And I'm curious, are that are there that many biracial journalists on Spanish language television? 
Um, I think we can, I mean, we should have more. <laughs> we should have more. Um, but we, I think little by little, I wasn't the, the first one to anchor a flagship uh, newscast in Spanish, the first Afro-Latina. And I was the first Afro-Latina to anchor a, a, a um a main uh, newscast in Colombia as well, my country. Um, we can have more. I think we need to be, like in general, the industry is more open uh, today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. But we also can do better in in so many ways, right? There's a lot of talent, not only Latinos, but Blacks and Afro-Latinas and biracial people. And I know you are from Colombia, and mm-hmm. I've got to ask you, as a black woman, uh, I watched that Republican debate that you moderated and saw mm-hmm. the vitriol that was thrown at you afterward. Because first of all, they kept mispronouncing your name, and I mean your fellow your fellow journalist. And then the the candidates were so outraged that you were asking them substantive questions. Were you at all surprised by that, or do you think this is one of the reasons there need to be people? that look like you and me on television. Yeah, no, I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was, it was, um, in, you know, he was not rude at all. And he apologized after doing commercial break. And, you know, I just told him like, it's okay. You know, it, it could have happened to anyone. It could have happened to me too. So on that side, on the other side about the questions, I was completely sure about the questions I wanted to ask and, and about my role sitting on that table uh, that night on that desk. So they were surprised they couldn't answer um, many of my questions. But I think is, you know, they lost a moment that they had to engage with the voters, not with me, but with the voters to respond to those questions that they probably or they they are barely asked, right, in, on a daily basis. You and to me, it, it was clear, you know, the, the, the community that I was representing and the people that I was representing. When you say your role, what do you mean by that? My role on that table to ask the questions that, that really mean to my community, that, re- that are the topics that are important to, to, to my community, to the community that I represent. We need more people like me asking questions that they are not usually asked um and and you know independent of what party i think they you know they have an opportunity to to address the the topics and the issues that matter to not only in this case republican voters but independent voters and voters that you know may not be happy with the government in you know certain um issues so I think it would, they, you know, they didn't respond and, and they lost um, a great opportunity. I've, I've got to ask you, what was it like breaking into Spanish language television in the U.S.? Because I know that there are different accents from different Spanish countries, right? Was that an issue or was mm-hmm. it, did people look at you funny and go, wow, what, what complexion is she? Because I'm a fairly light-skinned black woman, but I know on television for a long time, there was nobody darker than me that would see, that you'd see on television in Chicago where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, people get confused and it's, it, it's a weird feeling because for some people, I am not dark enough to be black 
and for for others i am not white enough to be considered the latino complexion uh so i'm like like in the middle while i feel i am black that's you know my family i am you know in my block majority black i grew up in a black community as the way i identify myself even though i have blood from other races but but we are all black in my family and um your question was about my accent in english well actually my question was both about that and also whether that issue made it more difficult to break into spanish language media in the us I think it was there was a need in 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 the Hispanic media in the United States and the person that took the chance to to you know to put me on TV because I was working in Colombia and they hired me to come to the United States in Telemundo actually is a very wise man white um um journalist Joe Perrin is his name and he thought it was there was an opportunity and a need for the market for the for the channel to show who re- who we really are and to show that in Hispanic America we have a large and strong black community as well. Okay. Um let me just ask you one more question. When young ladies sure. that are growing up now, they're in college, they're in high school, they're watching television, what do you want them to see when they look at you sitting in front of that camera? I want them I want them to see what i didn't see when i was growing up i never saw someone like me doing something important or playing an important role in the news in colombia um so i want them to see that this is possible that i can represent them and that they can be me one day that's univision news anchor ilya calderon you can read an article about the exhibition at smithsonianmag.com coming up a very lucky bear that's next on the cbs news weekend roundup Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. A huge honor for one of the nation's best-known historically black women's colleges in Atlanta. CBS's Deborah Rodriguez. U.S. News & World Report has ranked Spelman the number one HBCU for the 17th year in a row. College President Helene Gale tells CBS. We know we can go anywhere. When we're in a room, we belong there. And that's the power of what Spelman and a Spelman education can do. It produces the highest number of black women who go on to receive PhDs in science, technology, engineering, and math. Businesswoman and Spelman board member Rhonda Stryker and her husband, William John. Johnston are celebrating by gifting the college $100 million, the largest donation in the school's history. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. In South Bend, Indiana, there's a pilot program at St. Joseph County's Juvenile Probation Department that is transforming families. WSBT-TV's Kristen Bean reports now it's expanding. 
The SNAP program is an option for kids who end up at the juvenile probation department. It's a diversion program. Basically, it allows the low-risk and low-level juvenile offenders to avoid going deeper into the system by choosing to take part in the program. It's about to expand into schools. In 2022, Chloe Carrillo was struggling, and so was A.J. Jones. Their relationships with their families were strained, and they needed help. Honestly, um, hmm. I was going through some things at the time, and I had been put on probation. They were said this is an option that would help, um, just like skill building to conflict resolution. Both teens ended up in the SNAP program. It's a six-week program where kids like Chloe and AJ and their parents can work together on improving communication and conflict management. So it does seem short, but the change is transformational. Um, in those six weeks. Bree Warner coordinates the SNAP program and has been running each cohort of participants since the program was piloted 18 months ago. I love the blank slate that that first day has of just like these kids are coming to us and they get to start fresh. They get to just come and be loved and supported. During each two-hour meeting, there's time for connection, learning, discussion, and mentoring. SNAP teaches topics like conflict resolution, anger response, and relationship building. And this isn't just about the kids. Parents are required to participate. And that's an important piece because in many cases, everyone in the family can use help. What we've found so far in the last 18 months is most of these kids, they're great kids. And they have, they have parents who care, but they have some issues. Like there's some, some internal issues. They have some inner conflicts and they're, they don't have the tools to process them in a healthy ways. So it comes out and it's channeled in unhealthy ways. AJ is not a man of many words. He and his mom had been struggling to communicate. I didn't know how to like, talk to her. Now, thanks to the SNAP program, both feel more supported and happier. It was helpful. And it was healing, I would say. It, it, it healed our relationship. For Chloe. With me being a teenager, I, I didn't have the best relationship with my parents. SNAP helped her build a better relationship with her mom. It was like, I'm not the only one. And, and that was like the greatest feeling ever. Because I felt like, I feel like when, when I don't have a good relationship with my mom, I feel like that, that like makes me a bad daughter. But like, it doesn't. And I know that now. According to leaders at the St. Joseph County Juvenile Justice Center, 62 kids and their families have gone through the program. It has an 87% success rate, meaning 87% of the kids who've gone through the program have not re-entered the system. In fact, 11 families have asked to continue and take part in more sessions. The JJC executive director told WSBT the SNAP program is helpful because it is family-based and pulls the family together. So I felt like in um, the SNAP program that I found a support system. Erica Fowler, AJ's mom, says both she and her son learned about each other and about themselves. It made me proud, you know, and then I seen a lot of myself. I seen a lot of growth in him, but also growth in myself too. And Dion Carrillo, Chloe's mom, just like that we're all going through it. Learned they're not alone. This program helped us to find different ways that we could kind of play off each other's strengths and weaknesses and 
you know, like the taking a break thing. And like, that's okay. It's okay to not be okay sometimes. Now, nearly two years after entering the probation system, these families are starting this new year in a happier, better place. And they're doing it together. This is one of the most safest places I know. Definitely one of the most safest places I know. Right now, referrals come from the probation department, but thanks to new funding from the legislature, soon schools will be able to refer kids, preferably before they end up in the system. A positive sign of the times now as tourism is looking up after a long slump. CBS's Elaine Cobb has the details. Tourism around the world is set to return to pre-pandemic levels this year. The UN body specialized in tourism says 2023 saw travel back up to 88% of pre-COVID levels. The UNWTO says there is still some remaining pent-up demand from people who missed out on vacations during COVID. That and increased flight connections is expected to lead to a full recovery in the industry this year. Elaine Cobb, CBS News. Finally, the story of a rare bear who was saved in the midst of Ukraine's war with Russia. But CBS's Ian Lee tells us pulling the creature out of a war zone was just the beginning of a long road to recovery. A victim of Russia's war in Ukraine is finding a new home in Scotland. Yampel, the Asiatic bear, survived an unbearable ordeal. He has been through a lot. He's been in the middle of a war zone and he's experienced some really horrible things. Ukrainian troops seized a bombed-out zoo in the midst of fighting in 2022, rescuing Yampel in the nick of time. Nearly all the other 200 animals died from starvation, others killed by bullets or shrapnel. We weren't entirely sure if he'd be kind of experiencing something similar to, to like PTSD. Yampel was skin and bones when he was taken to Belgium to recuperate and given more than the bare necessities with some sweet treats. Bears love it. If there is one thing that bears love, then it's definitely things with sugar. Yampel is now a healthy 440 pounds and getting his bearings in his new Scottish surroundings. He seems to actually be quite sleepy right now, so he's been spending a lot of time indoors. With no signs yet of PTSD, Zookeepers are hopeful the 12-year-old will only have peaceful years ahead. Ian Lee, CBS News, London. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and 
and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen to Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.